Hey, engine professionals, machinists, and enthusiasts, welcome to the Engine Professional Podcast. Listeners, welcome back to another edition of the Engine Professional Podcast. My name is Steve Fox. I'm here with my co-host Chuck Lynch. Chuck, how's it going? All good, Steve. How about yourself? Going pretty good. It's been uh, been kind of a crazy summer with uh, some travel work that's been going on here and vacations and so on. So it's we've had a little bit of struggle trying to get things scheduled to do a podcast. So. Uh, everybody that thought we had gone away, we have not. It's just been crazy busy here at work. Yeah, it's it's good to be so busy, but uh, you scratch your head saying, how am I going to fit 30 hours into a 24-hour day? <laughs> I know, and it's already August. It's like, where'd the summer go? It's like, holy cow, we're almost done. <laughs> and for us up in the north, pretty, pretty soon we'll complain complaining that it's too cold. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be in the upper 90s this week, and next next couple months we'll be, holy cow, it's too cold up here. <laughs> Turn off the freezer. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but no, it's good to be back. It's good to be doing this again. Uh, just just been crazy, crazy busy here at work. And, you know, we all wear a lot of different hats and trying to get things scheduled, and we think we have time to do it, and then something pops up. So it's good to be back to doing this oh yeah yeah and you're absolutely right a little scenario that we had in the past week see that that freaking murphy he's always hanging around every oh. corner trying to <laughs> you know it's it's like that uh it's that insurance commercial they don't call him murphy the chaos or oh, menace yeah. or something like that yeah. but he's always <laughs> just there to tear stuff up and we've had that the last couple of weeks for sure <laughs> Well, we're gonna we're gonna introduce you to a new segment that uh, kind of uh, the tech department has been talking about. That thought it would be a good addition to the podcast, and Chuck and I both agreed that it would be so. And it's a segment called "Ask the Tech," and what we're gonna be doing is is probably asking two or three questions that we've had on the tech line that we feel would be good information to our listeners in the engine building industry. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the question and I'm going to ask Chuck, who is our Director of Technical Services, uh, to get his input on the question. So Chuck, will begin with question number one. What factors does installed stem height impact? All right. So um, to look at this question, and it is, it's probably the most common question that we get is, you know, what's the installed stem height for X engine? And, you know, that's typically not necessarily published data, but what they do share <clears throat> is the direct correlation of it is the operating spring height specs, right? So the installed spring height is um, always typically published. That spring's got to work in, in a zone that, you know, you don't have coil bind, you got to have enough seat pressure and so forth. Um, so... Installed stem height is a derivative of that. So as I cut my seat, I'm reducing spring pressure. I'm increasing installed stem height. So one of the other factors that's a real big concern to us is lash. Um, and we've got to be careful about lash, right? Because um, 
of course, if you've got buckets that are your way to adjust it, they can be extremely expensive and how available are they? Um, but one of the other things I think that's a little bit misunderstood is when you have a, a big old lifter in the block, well, they got a, they get some lash tolerance. Some of these modern engines with these little torpedoes, not much lash tolerance. You know, let's uh, speak for like the modular Ford and actually the 37, 47 Chrysler. Those things have a um, lash, dry lash tolerance and we'll get into that in just a second here what it means but um of 18 to 33 thousandths so i've got 15 thousandths dry lash tolerance well dry lash on a overhead cam engine means that you're going to collapse that lash adjuster hla lifter whatever your jargon is you're going to use for that thing you got to squeeze all the oil out of it and then you have to take a feeler gauge and go between the base circle of the camshaft and the roller wheel on the follower slash rocker arm so yeah if you um, aren't measuring installed stem heights and hoping that that lash adjuster can accommodate all of that um, yeah you're gonna have to be careful that could end up in misfires and whatnot so uh, long answer to a short question but it just goes to show how how much is going on within in, in an engine Kind of on those same lines, Chuck, one of the other questions as you were talking there that kind of comes up with stem height, as you know, is it measured with or without the shim um, on those particular stem height readings? Yeah, and that's that's crazy. I was just talking to, to a friend the other day. I mean, sometimes you see it, it's published. It says measure it with the shim. Sometimes it's yeah. measured without a shim. In most instances where we have that it was as reported in process, uh, it's the guys have it in the machine shop. It's all cleaned up, tore down. So many times the spring shim is a, is also the valve stem seal. They're a unitized mm -hmm. component. So you, to have it apart and have it in the machine shop, you're going to have that off anyway. So more often than not, we're going to say it's minus the shim, but you just, you know, it's, pay attention. Take a look. Make sure the specs don't say with shim. And some you'll sometimes find that because, oh, wow, this thing's off by 30 or 40 thousandths. Oh, well, it's probably because it should have had the shim. Kind of goes back to an earlier podcast we did where it was uh, measure twice, cut once. Uh, kind of make sure you measure those before you start machining on things, you know, so you at least have a reference point to go against. Right, right. You know, we have tons of calls that say, hey, I got a basket case. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you can still measure. Um, usually the basket case comes to you all to or part, and you got to figure out what goes where. But they didn't do any machining. They just realized, oh, well, I'm not just going to be able to fluff and buff this thing and put it back together. It's going to have to be machined. So even at that, still measure before you machine. Yeah. Uh, question two kind of deals with uh, that mating surface of all those gasket surfaces. So uh, is it okay to mill all gasket surfaces to the same roughness specification? You know, really the gasket dictates our surface finish. Uh, MLS, now they're going, your head and block are going to be equal. Most people mill surfaces, whether it's cast iron block, aluminum head. If it's got a, I'm going to use a few different terms here. you got composite gaskets. So it's a composition type gasket that's, maybe it's paper clay, Kevlar facing materials that are applied to a, 
to a steel core, you get perforated core. Um, the sometimes you see the steel lacing uh, on a gasket. Now in the 80s, early 90s, there used to be some publications. That said, okay, you you want the gasket to have some bite on the block side, and then on the aluminum side where the head's moving, expanding, contracting, expanding, contracting, you would run it a little smoother so you could allow some slippage. But that also causes burnishing, micro-welding. We still see that today. You see where the the firing area is sunk into the head, as it would appear. And it's from micro-welding. It's just, there's so many different materials. We've got dissimilar metals that expand to contract at different rates. And so they will scrub. And it looks like the gasket sinks into the deck of the block or the head or something. And, but by and large we're seeing MLS today yeah block head same surface finish but when it comes to the older stuff of course it's typically rougher and again the head or the block could have different specifications and that'll bring us to our last question which ironically I think probably the majority uh, of us on the tech line have probably had this question asked in the last couple of weeks it's talking about piston to wall clearance and how that can be an interference fit so with uh modern materials you see piston to wall clearance is really close anyway we aren't truly interference fit that's the coatings and if you don't have windows to measure the actual size point of the piston then you're measuring over the coating so in that situation it's going to appear that you have an interference fit can i really run my aluminum piston at an interference fit in the engine no the there may be some spring out in the tails of the piston that are but you're not running at the size point of that piston where it's truly an interference fit um so it that comes up all the time there are tons of different coatings out there too because I'm going to, you know, we'll go with some names here because this helps sort it out for people. But like line to line, they have what they call their abradable coating. A lot of people apply that on pistons. Well, that's going to be a heavy thickness. And then, you know, Mala pistons, they have their particular coating. It's put on really thin and then they have this phosphating that turns the whole piston black. Uh, oftentimes they don't have size windows or they have size windows that aren't really the size of the end of our micrometers. Now most all of us in a machine shop have a micrometer, right? But they have some specialized gauges that they run through so that it looks like a little slit, like a partially opened eye that the mic's bigger than that. So you can't really measure in that window unless you have some kind of gauge that allows you to. Um, I know that stuff Brad's building in at QMP, it's got the indicator tips on it and so forth and he's selling a ton of those i've seen um, something like that does allow you to measure in that window which can't always do that so you have to trust the data that they put on the box that says okay you hone the cylinder to this size and you're like yeah it's, it's interference fit but when you look for the ls's they straight up tell you that there's interference fit it's not you you're misreading that or whatever because the coating thickness so it straight up tells you shows you the math and you're like how does this work it's interference <laughs> <laughs> so it's a good question and yeah. better ask and be you know 
be sorry that you didn't when the thing welded itself together in 10 miles. Exactly, exactly. Well, if you have a question for Chuck and you'd like to uh, submit that to us, you can using our email address at eppodcast at aera.org. And Chuck will uh, will siphon through those questions and then we'll try to try to get them on the podcast. So if you do have something you'd like to have answered or got a question about, please feel free to email that to us and we'll be glad to look it over and review it. And as well, we'll be adding tech calls that we get on the tech line to our Ask the Tech question. But we'd definitely like some feedback from our listeners. Um, if you got a question, send it in. Yeah, and I'd like to interject that. Um, you know, we're probably going to put pose these questions to other industry experts in the, in the field. And, um, you know, if, if we get some of that feedback, we'll definitely share, you know, our sources and so forth on that as well. So that helps clear things up sometimes too, if they're a very specific question. Chuck, that brings us to the history for the month of August. So we'll cruise right into that. And it was ironic that the cruise control was invented August 22nd of 1950. Mr. Ralph Teeter, who was an engineer and inventor, overcame blindness to develop the automotive feature we know as cruise control, a device that foreshadowed technologies like autonomous vehicles, GPS navigation, hazard automatic braking, and lane assist systems. Pretty funny that a guy that uh, is blind invented the cruise control. Yeah, I hope he didn't lose his vision falling off a teeter-totter. <laughs> And we'll get into that as we go along, but go ahead, Chuck. So born in 1890 in Hagerstown, Indiana, Teeter had normal vision until five when his hand slipped while working with a knife and then the blade penetrated his eye. Ooh, scary. This resulted in blindness in one eye. However, within a year, a condition known as sympathetic ophthalmia rendered him completely blind. Despite his disability, Teeter developed an extremely acute sense of touch and a knack for understanding machinery working at his family's bicycle company. At the age of 12, having been trained by his father and uncles as a machinist, he actually built an automobile of his own design that reached speeds of 25 miles an hour. Indiana and speed, man. It was happening. Is that downhill? So, Teeter attended the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia and earned a mechanical engineering degree in 1912. He then took a job working on a shipyard contract for the U.S. Navy in Camden, New Jersey, where he developed a process for dynamically balancing steam turbines that operated under extreme heat and pressure, leading to an industry standard for maritime propulsion. After that invention... Teeter returned to the family business known as Teeter Hartley, an early automotive supplier and provider of gasoline engines to companies like Indiana Base, Auburn, and Duesenberg. Later, the company elected to specialize in producing piston rings for engines. Higher quality piston rings would lead to more powerful and fuel efficient engines, and when the company's product became the industry standard, it led to a new name known as Perfect Circle. Very cool. Yeah, I did not know that, to be honest with you, so it was kind of cool. Teeter served as Perfect Circle's lead engineer and later was appointed president of his family's auto parts business in 1946. You know, Bill McKnight was from that area, 
and mm-hmm. I'm sure he knows tons of stories about that. Or you know, it'd be so great to to have his input on this. Yeah, it would have been cool to yeah, have him on on yeah, something like this. Very cool. Yeah, you know, like I said, that's right in right in his area, and you know, piston rings, and he he did a stint with Perfect Circle. Perfect. So yeah, yep. terrific. So vehicles were becoming fast enough that Teeter began focusing on automobile safety. In addition, during World War II, federal fuel conservation policies led to the adoption of nationwide speed limit of 35 miles per hour. That's hard to fathom. Teeter's work <laughs> resulted in the invention he dubbed the Speedo Stat, which in, allowed the driver to select a speed. Once that speed was achieved, a piston would push back against the gas pedal. On August 22, 1950, he received a patent for his device speed control for motor vehicles. Speed control was a luxury amenity at first, offered as an option first by Chrysler in 1958. <clears throat> it proved so popular that Chrysler began to offer Speedostat on all its models. When General Motors' Cadillac division adapted this service, or device, I'm sorry, it marketed the feature under the moniker Cruise Control. Yeah, that's... Uh... The speedo stat. I guess there were so many stat. stat. You know, thermostat. (laughs) (laughs) Stat was the word. Yeah, get the speed stat. (laughs) (laughs) In 1960s, cruise control was a convenient but non-essential option for vehicles. However, the feature was more universally adopted in the 1970s when it was recognized as an effective means of fuel conservation during the organization of petroleum exporting countries, OPEC, which we still talk about with great disdain, typically, oil embargo began in 1973. Um, you know, as, as I was mentioned earlier, uh, just recently, a couple of years ago, went to rent a car and didn't have uh, cruise control. I turned around and took it back, and I'm like, yeah, speeding tickets. So now yeah. I just can't fathom not having it. <laughs> Among his other accomplishments, Teeter served as president of the Society of Automotive Engineers, received a number of honorary degrees, and an annual award given by SAE bears his name. He died in 1982 and was inducted into the Automotive Hall of Fame in 1988. It ended up being a very cool story, you know. I mean, we got to find this stuff, uh, history, go out and do some research. And some of the things you stumbled upon... You know, I mean, we know his impact without, I didn't know his name. And one thing, you know, I I meant to put it in there and I forgot was, as I was doing some research for the history, I found where, like, this invention came from as he was driving around, you know, obviously he had to have a chauffeur, and I think it was his lawyer or something like that, was driving him around, and the thing was just he'd go fast and then he'd go slow then he'd go fast and then he'd go slow and he was like jerking back and forth in the seat and that's kind of what made him think like man there's got we got to invent something where you can just set it at one speed and go and there's none of this herky-jerky stuff going on so it's kind of cool that um him just riding around you know and not just all his senses you know being blind where he could pick up these other things and and come up with these inventions, uh, even the balancing deal uh, on the on the uh, turbines. You know, I mean, it's like nothing can hold somebody back if you really work at it. Yeah, if you desire that. You know, it, yep. it seems like so many handicapped people 
those other senses are so acute that you know and you just have the have the drive instead of woe is me as you know hey nothing's holding me back right. we're gonna do this like um you know thomas edison he he invented the record player as we know it and he was basically deaf so how does a guy who can't hear music who has such much passion <laughs> about music he said he used to bite the wood of the record player or actually the the horn and he would feel it his sense other senses were so heightened and he was a deaf guy and it's just amazing here you know just never give up never give up all right chuck well that's the end of our history for this month of august and it brings us to our topic of discussion here which we'll get into and i don't think we mentioned it at the beginning so hopefully listeners are uh kind of intrigued on what we're going to talk about and it's going to be compression ratios so how about we jump into it ratios chuck they're pretty important to the engine aren't they <laughs> absolutely they started out pretty low and they've uh, grown a lot over the years and and you know engine math is yep. is absolutely paramount uh, we don't we don't give math enough credit as is but you know when it comes to engine math compression ratio is super important you know we started earlier talking about the installed stem heights and so forth you know, what we do, I mean, when you're measuring stuff, you know, surface finish in the millionths of an inch or microns, uh, installed stem heights or in thousands of an inch, piston to wall clearance, well, they're getting, you know, that micron millionths of an inch in some applications. So, extremely important. Um, so, that said, again, the math component of it is you know in the definition of compression ratio so if i have a area say i've got you know four cubic inches and but i want to take that whole four cubic inches and compress it into one inch okay so that's what we're talking about a compression ratio um if i take the swept volume and that's the piston traveling from the bottom of the cylinder to the top of the cylinder and squeezing it into the area of say that what's a left in the top of the piston say you got a little bowl or maybe you have a dome and then you're going to displace the area in my 52 cc combustion chamber in the cylinder head so that's compression ratio so i'm taking the volume and compressing it down into another volume so okay now i need to compare the large volume to the small volume so that's that you know, in simplified terms, that's basically what you're doing. So Chuck, that's a great explanation of, of kind of what a compression ratio is, but why does it really matter? It's, uh, you know, everything's about the, the BTU, you know, if, if we better define the combustion event and we know the, the type of fuel that's being consumed, because that's going to impact what you can do with compression ratios, right? You know, what's the stability of it? So if you have pre-ignition or detonation and you blow the thing all apart all the time, then I think, you know, like the 
Rudolph Diesel deal. He blew some engines to pieces playing around with coal before, you know, they, they did the diesel oil thing. So, um, you know, the components around it may not survive. But you're ultimately trying to get the most amount of energy into the out of the available fuel, given that you've got everything tuned right. So um, why does compression ratio matter? It's uh, about the efficiency of the burn and the power output. And you're right, you know, there's several different factors that'll play into the compression ratio, you know, and one of them was fuel that you had mentioned before, but another thing is probably, you know, as you mill ahead or do some block work, you know, that'll probably change some of that compression ratio as well. Yeah, you know, we get, we get the simplified question all the time, how much can I mill off this head? And we really wish that it was so simple that you could say, okay, you can do 10,000s, you can do 20,000s. But it's, it's not always really that simple because if you have a head that starts with 34 cc's as opposed to a small block Chevy that's at 62 or a big block Ford that's at 108, um, it, it's different. You know, you're... If I start out at a 108cc combustion chamber and I mill 5,000s off of it, man, you didn't affect much. But, you know, it's like, okay, I got to, I take my fist and put it into a gallon bucket that's half full. It displaces the water a little bit. But if I got an 8-ounce Solo cup and I try to stuff my hand in it, you're going to empty the Solo cup. It's all going to spill out. So... You know, the impact is, you know, it's the same hand, but the impact's greatly different. So if you got a 34cc combustion chamber and you mill 10,000s, you know, you could quickly be at 29 because the percentage of the available volume goes away fast. Well, the compression ratio increases fast. And then you start having your pre-ignition detonation type thing. So you kind of, you need to know the build and what the compression ratio is to start with. Today, what we're faced with is these direct injected gas engines. Well, if they're already 11.3 to 1, and you, you just tickle things a little bit and, you know, you're increasing it. So that's even more reason to chew on the guy who brings you ahead that he's had the Rolock disc out on. I was going to say, I was just going to He just needs to go to jail, you know, just <laughs> send him straight to jail. So. I think I saw somebody post that the other day about uh, using those discs and cleaning and he goes man i just wish they'd ban these things <laughs> it looked pretty bad it looked pretty bad for sure yeah Boy. some folks are like well you know it brings me work i get to mill that but if you got nothing to work with right you know you're still the bad guy if you send it back okay i got the now it's smooth and flat again but now it's burning holes in pistons now we talked a little bit about milling those you know and changing it but i i'm pretty sure and would assume that any type of boring, you know, if you went to an oversize on a bore, that probably affects it as well because you're going to increase that bore volume a little bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So how does the aftermarket typically deal with that, compensate? What they do will, they know that if somebody is going, if someone machine shop is going to oversize a cylinder bore, they typically mill the gasket deck and things of that nature as well. So in the aftermarket, they just usually automatically will 
reduce the compression distance, you know, 10,000s, 20,000s, depends on, on the particular application. So they reduce the compression distance of the piston, which is in essence dropping it in the bore. And they may also, if it's a, a piston that has a dish or a dome, they'll modify those dimensions too. Um, anytime you would potentially bring the parts closer together by milling the block and a head, then you've got to think about interference if you have a dome or piston protrusion. So, so they, they address it in those manners, but it absolutely does matter. Now, if you're having to stick with OE parts, so you sleeve the block back to, to standard, um, then there's oversized thickness gaskets that may help you in the same situation. Um, and you know, so parts that kind of compensate for us doing machining, um, are going to be your head gasket thickness, your reduced height pistons. Um, some of the things that you probably wouldn't even think of is in the aftermarket, you look at the forging of the valve and maybe the OE was a has a little bit different compression button in the center of the valve. They can actually modify that. Uh, that usually is not something that's so well known, but it is. You can do it in the aftermarket. It's more likely that you can do something like that. So you can really fine tune with things like that. So there are a lot of options out there for engine builders that may or may not know that that happens even. You know, I mean, uh, changing that compression height a little bit or, or doing things like that yeah. on those parts. Yeah, and if you're using aftermarket parts and that has happened, you know, if you're trying to achieve a higher compression ratio because you're doing a performance build or something, you probably want to be aware that, hmm, that part might actually be reduced compression distance from OE. So in my efforts to increase it, so I actually, I bought a part that maybe made it even a little less. Say if it's exactly. D-stroke 20 and you only milled the head five, you still may not be where you want to be. So again, engine math, got to calculate all of this stuff. You know, what's the head volume? What's the the gasket thickness, all these tools, you know, and this tool is available in our process program. And, mm -hmm. you know, I have these discussions with folks a lot, you know, okay, if you know the combustion chamber area, of that cylinder head, now you can just, you can go in there before you actually touch it and you can calculate that. Okay. Here's where I'm safe. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of measuring and, and doing all that, and I'm, I'm sure there's several, several types of tools out there that can measure compression ratio or, Kind of help you get to that point you know why don't we touch on a little bit of those and what's out there for for our engine builders so you know in the shop environment not everybody wants to get a uh burt scale and the alcohol and bust that stuff out and measure the combustion chambers all the time that's that's the surefire way if you want no, it's not the alcohol we drink yeah right? yeah we don't no, want guys that are, don't use that no this is the <laughs> the would we say medical purposes alcohol yeah. but if you go to like walmart you can get the stuff that's green or, or colored and that's probably the cheapest thing to do for your scale because you need like water um what's the thing about water that you don't have with the alcohol and oils and so forth is the surface tension right water wants to stick to itself so you, if you try to pour a combustion chamber since the water has such high surface tension um it'll stick to itself and give you some misreading. So you need something that flows really well. So you better have good valve to seat contact. And so forth <laughs> exactly. be measured. But you, you need that to, uh, to measure the volumes. Um, some of the other tools, you know, if you look at 
the a lot of modern heads they have the little datum point in the combustion chamber and you can use a height gauge and come down and touch that and if it's at this height it should be at this particular volume again those are should be could be ought to be things you know what's the valve recession and so forth you don't really know unless you do um pour the chambers and if it's uh the piston and in the block you know they've got known distance plates or known volume plate so maybe it's got a dummy combustion chamber in it so you put grease in the ring area uh, and then you can pour the volume that way you know what area is above the ring what's above the crown if it's got a dish or a dome most any dish usually have valve reliefs right so it's that's give and take every time you do it so um but again the the best way is to uh do the mock do the math, pour the volumes, and that's going to be your best outcome. And I think, you know, most of these parts manufacturers on the piston side, they can supply you with the dish CC and, the, and all that stuff and let you know what the, the dome heights are and, and what that is. So you should be able to, like you say, back to the math thing, you should be able to do the math and figure some of that stuff out. Right, right. Definitely with the, with the, the cylinder side of it. When it comes yeah. to the cylinder head, that's... Uh, again you can find a lot of that and you can get yourself in a in a safe area right um i'm not saying that everybody has to go out and start pouring combustion chambers everything they do but i'm just saying you know if you if you want to know exactly then that's how you're going to get there that's the best way to do it correct right now some of the other things that have come up here is and, and I don't know, I don't know the answer to this so much, but you might, Chuck, is how much can the ECM accommodate for compression ratios? Well, and so there's not a real cut and dry answer necessarily. So what, what they do in the OE design parameters, you usually like plus or minus three tenths of a compression point. Um, we get the question for multiple reasons. Okay, is it going to affect the timing? If I got an overhead cam engine, how much can I mill thirty thousandths and it not change the timing of the engine? So, you know, the ECU, ECM, they can accommodate some of that stuff. Pre-ignition detonation, well, they change timing, they change fuel trim, and so forth. But again, you can safely, if you're plus or minus three tenths of a compression point from original, then you're probably pretty good shape. The thing is, we're in a world where we have aftermarket tuning devices that you bolt on, ECM reflashes, and then we have the tuner that's a pretty, in, you know, knowledgeable human being that says that I can interface with this and I can change parameters given on where you live. Because the OEs try to make stuff live everywhere, right? I got a guy who's going to buy this car at sea level and I got a guy that lives in Denver that's going to buy it and or I got a guy that lives in Sheridan, Wyoming. So I have to accommodate that. You got people that live in a, in Alaska that have really cold winters or, mm -hmm. or Midgey, Minnesota <laughs> and you got the people that live in Miami. Texas. Yeah, so exactly. it's uh they have to accommodate all of that. So there's not just a hey if I'm within this percent it's always going to survive and then fuel you have winter fuel you have summer blends don't stockpile fuel because that only makes the stuff worse because volatility changes as some of the stuff evaporates so you know nothing's 
ever simple but um yeah it'd be nice to be able to say that you can do this and it and get by with it i mean depending on which side of the cylinder head you know the drive rotation where's the tensioner at is it going to advance or retard based on my movement so uh the best thing is to uh measure twice cut once <laughs> know what your numbers are and then you can then you can calculate it and see if you're within that range yeah i think um and i think you and i talked about it before was um, a question like that would be good for like a Ben Strader over at EFI University and, and you and I have talked about having him on and it's just trying to get those schedules work together and I think when we do we'll kind of we'll kind of have a more in-depth talk about compression ratios I think where he can he can shed some light on some things that that might be out of our realm here a little bit but he, I think he'll do a, he'd do a very good job of answering those types of questions yeah definitely the engine math stuff so maybe that's what we do is kind of focus something on yep. on engine math because yeah and he'd be good he he wants to come on and we just trying to get our our schedules to line up to where we can get him on he's very busy we're very busy so but it will happen it'll happen in the future for sure uh, sooner rather than later let's hope why <laughs> Great discussion on engine compression ratios there and kind of all the factors that play into that. I think it enlightened some of our listeners on some things that they should be aware of and some tooling that they should possibly be looking at uh, moving forward in the shop, which kind of brings us up to uh, what our next discussion will be. And he's a good friend of ours, uh, Mr. Dan Bagley from Molly Clevite. And what do you think he's going to talk about, Chuck? You know, Dan has tons and tons of experience in engine failure analysis and so been kind of priming him to to help us out on what he did for so many years when he was with uh roush yates and that was preparing for the evaluation so um outputs are only as good as the inputs right and so he would take a look at at engines post run whether they failed or not and just study Hey, if we adjust this or adjust that. So, um, hoping to have him to shed some light on more of that. That's something that we don't have to have the, the visuals of. But, because, by and large, we're talking to engine machinists. So, they know the parts. They know the methodologies and so forth. But just the planning. You know, he's a high-detail guy. He's probably going to share 10 things that you can take back and use, you know. If you can get one tidbit from any of these, it's good. But I think Dan, he, he offers a lot. And anybody that knows him, they know that. Yeah. And in my discussions previously with Dan before we even started this podcast, you could tell he's just he's passionate about this industry and he just loves to teach people. He loves to educate people on, on things in our industry and those failures and, and preparing for engine analysis. Like you said, he's... He really likes to share that information with people. Looking forward to it. Should be a good one for sure. For sure. Well, we're coming up on show season here. It'll be here before we know it. Not a, It's a little bit of ways, but boy, if you turn around, it'll be knocking us on the floor. So um, uh, AERA is turning one. This is our 100th year this year. So 
Uh, we'll have some giveaways that we'll be doing at the trade show, so please stop by and see us. Uh, we'll be at Apex SEMA coming up here in, uh, what, end of October, first part of November. And then we'll also be at PRI, where we'll have our big party. With uh, we got a lot of cool things uh, kind of in discussions of what we're doing, so look us up at those trade shows. Uh, make sure you stop by the booth. We'll be happy to see you, talk to you. Uh, we'll give you our booth numbers here coming up in our next uh, episode here once we got everything finalized and uh, but yeah that season will be here before you know it it starts to get busy after Labor Day oh absolutely absolutely and you know and we're doing two back-to-back -back tech and skills regionals and yep. yeah it's just it's hard to squeeze it all in but Murphy's at us again <laughs> yeah. but you know all those things said that's that's the most rewarding part is when we get face-to-face -face with our yeah. our members and you know we shake hands and, and we make a real friend you know, you know Agreed. It, it always Agreed. just improves that's why we, i love the face-to-face -face stuff at the trade shows you know and i'm not that social of a guy myself but man you when it's about the market we're in and it's a little different when you're working with guys that are all in the same industry you have so many uh similarities you just you're instantly friends it's great mm -hmm. i love it it's great it's great so if you haven't subscribed to the engine professional podcast you can do so on your favorite podcast listening platforms or listen online at podcast.engineprofessional.com and as we had mentioned before you can email us with any questions or comments about the podcast at eppodcast at aera.org well, Chuck, it brings us to an end of another episode. Um, great job. I think we did did good in informing our listeners on some of our tech questions that we get on the tech line. You know, we answered some of those and kind of gave some information out uh, as far as stem heights and, you know, understanding the interference fit on a piston is not, it's all about the coating on there. And, and then we talked a little bit about compression ratios and and then the introduction of the cruise control, since we're cruising on out of here. Um, that is a uh, uh, pretty interesting history there. You know, a, a blind gentleman invented the cruise control, which I thought was great. Yeah, very, very interesting. Yeah. So till next time when we get to beat uh, Mr. Dan Bagley and talk about preparation for engine analysis. Uh, everybody take care. Happy machining and uh, looking forward to it next time, Chuck. Take care out there. Thank you.